Amen. Uh, as you grab a seat, uh, you can turn to 2 Timothy chapter 2. We're going to look at 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 20 through 26 today. Um, before we do that, though, um, I just want to take a moment. Um, two weeks ago yesterday, um, many of you know this, some of you may not, or two weeks ago tomorrow, I should say, uh, Leslie Pollard went home to be with the Lord. And uh, while we're not going to have a service for her, uh, we also do want to take a moment and be able to uh, pray for Dale and their family um, and to, to be able to come alongside of them and, and to celebrate the fact that Leslie knew Jesus and is now with him. Uh, and so while we grieve and while we continue to sort out life uh, with her absence, we also know that her absence here is her presence with the Lord. Uh, and so if you would just join me for a moment as we pray for Dale and their family, uh, and we'll continue in worship this morning through the word. God, we, we are so thankful that the one who trusts in you does not put their hope in vain. Uh, Lord, we thank you that Leslie had a sure and solid hope in you. Um, and that hope means that her, her life didn't finish two weeks ago tomorrow. It simply transitioned to life with you forever. Uh, Lord, we pray that you would continue to comfort Dale and their family, that you would uh, continue to minister to them through your spirit in the way that only you can do. God, we pray that as we as a church family would continue to minister uh, and, and you would give us eyes to see how we can do that well. Uh, Lord, we pray that you would continue in each and every one of us to help us to fix our eyes on you, the author and perfecter of our faith. Lord, we thank you that you are faithful to the end. You know those who are yours and you are faithful to see your work completed in them just as it's been completed in Leslie, and we look forward in hope to it being completed in each one who places their hope in you. God, we pray that as we continue to just look into your word this morning, you would encourage us to set that same kind of hope and faith in you, the one that does not disappoint, the one who does not let us down. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. As I said this morning, we're in, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, uh, verses 20 through 26. Uh, I, I guess I, I halfway apologize if you came in this morning expecting um, Pledge of Allegiance, uh, all of the patriotic songs. We don't have any of that. Uh, it's not that we devalue where we live and the freedoms that we enjoy as citizens of our country, but when we gather for worship on Sunday, we are celebrating our citizenship in an even greater kingdom, uh, the one that, that ultimately holds all of our hopes, all of our affections, uh, and, and, and doesn't disappoint. And so uh, uh, even though it may not be out front and central, it's not that we're not ashamed of where we live. We're not ashamed of, of the freedoms that we do have, but, but we're here because of Jesus, and he's who gets our focus each and every Sunday. Uh, and, and so maybe you felt the same way on Mother's Day or Father's Day. You're like, wait, you didn't say hardly anything about them. Uh, we love you all. Uh, we just love Jesus even more. And so uh, that's where our focus is this morning, uh, looking to, to to just root our hope in Jesus. So 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 20 through 26. We're finishing up 2 Timothy chapter 2 this morning. Um, we're dropping midstream in verse 20 back into Paul's encouragement to Timothy, his younger co-worker, 
Um, and he is encouraging Timothy to continue to labor faithfully for the gospel in the midst of challenges inside the church, outside of the church, right? There's, there's mounting persecution coming from Rome towards Christianity. There's also many who Paul has said have, have abandoned him because he's in prison and, and likely going to abandon Timothy if he faces persecution. And Paul is encouraging Timothy to stay focused, to stay on task, to not grow ashamed or grow weary in the gospel. And in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 20 through 26, Paul's going to give us just a, a standard illustration to Timothy that, that anybody in probably any time period in all of time will understand in order to see this central idea or this fundamental truth of uh, what a response to the gospel ought to look like for the follower of Jesus. And so uh, what we're talking about this morning, again, I, I, I kind of highlight this as a caution if if your hope this morning coming in um, to the message or coming into church, if your hope is built on what you can do and you just brushing yourself up and becoming a better person, um, you could you could run with that in a way this morning that would be really unhealthy for you because what what all of this hinges on is God's work in His people, so that so that God draws people to a right relationship with himself through faith in Jesus, right? And and because of that faith in Jesus, there's a right response that follows, that, that, that follows in a life of good works. It follows in a life of consistently and constantly responding to God's work in us. So it's a response rather than the means of trying to obtain God's favor, so if we get this out of whack from the very beginning, like if we get it out of order and we say, this is us trying our best to earn God's favor, we might find ourselves on a performance treadmill that's going to disappoint. But if we see this as the right response to one who has put their hope in Jesus already, and Jesus has made them clean, he's made them new, he's created a new person in you, right, and he's filled you with his spirit, and he's enabling you to do the things that he's calling you to do, what we're talking about are two very different things. And so what Paul is going to encourage Timothy this morning, or in Second Timothy chapter 2, again, if we get this out of order, we will miss the point. So it all hinges on, first and foremost, we understand we're coming to this place in Second Timothy, but to all of Scripture recognizing that God has created us to know him and to walk with him. But you and I and every other person, everywhere, in every place, in all times, has the same problem. We have thrown off God's design for us, and we pursued our own agenda. And that has brought to each and every person, you and me and every other person apart from Jesus, that has brought a separation between a right, holy, good God and us. But the good news is that God so loves the people that he made in his image in every time, every place, everywhere, that he sent his eternal son Jesus to take on flesh, to live among us, to live the perfect life that you and I couldn't live. And in his perfection, in his perfect life, he went to the cross on Calvary and he died, not just as an example of, wow, this is how much God loves people, but functionally to take away the sins of all who would put their hope and their faith in Jesus. To restore a right relationship between God and his creation. 
And so what we're talking about this morning is if we respond to the gospel and the response is we turn, and this is going to be the, like, I'll just give you the spoiler. This is what we're talking about today. Turning away from sin and turning towards Jesus in a pursuit of him. He gives new life through the spirit, new birth, new hope, a future, purpose, completely different than we were before. And that's different, and that changes everything of who we are and why we do what we do. And what Paul is going to lay out for us in 2 Timothy 2, 20-26, as we look at what Paul is encouraging Timothy, and their, uh, by extension, every believer in Christ, he is encouraging us, we will see, to live lives that don't look like what is typical for everyone around us. It changes who we are and why we do what we do completely on its head because of what Jesus has done for us. And so before I go even any further than that, this, this very simple invitation that God makes to every single person through his son Jesus is if you are, if you're separated from him because of your sin, which every person is apart from Jesus, the invitation is simply to turn from sin and turn to Jesus in faith and not just as a one time turning, but a constant lifelong turning towards Jesus and pursuing him. And I just encourage you, if you've never done that, this morning, don't go any farther with me in the text before you get that aspect straight. Don't leave today without getting that peace settled in your heart and your life. Having said that, go to the text with me, Second Timothy chapter 2, verses 20 through 26. Paul says, now in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him, to do his will. So in verses 20 and 21, Paul is immediately following, if you remember last week, the, the, the tail end of the command in verse 19. He says, God's firm foundation stands bearing the seal. The Lord knows those who are his. And then we're going to carry off of this last phrase into verse 20. Let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. And he takes that, that last phrase. Let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. And now he turns his attention to an example that sets this in front of Timothy and to everyone else. Now, if you can imagine, and he lays it out, he gives a visual, tangible illustration. How many of you have ever been into a house before? Right? At some point, you've been in a house. Like, so you see right here, Paul has laid out an illustration. It's like, you, you, can't, you can't miss this. Even if you've never been in a house, you've heard of a house, and you, you, like, you see the stuff that goes into a house. But everybody's been into a house. 
He says, now in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. So he says, uh, you're familiar with the idea of a house. Now are you familiar with like furniture and the things that go into a house? You all have some of those things that are in your house. You don't just go in and probably, it's not completely empty. You, You have some things in there. And those things all have a different purpose. But I ask you a question, like if you go home today, and, and if you're doing this, you probably need to fix this with your, your spouse. But if you go home today, do you have a chainsaw sitting on your kitchen table? Not yet. I was, like, see, I, I fixed this because I was going to ask, like, hey, do you ever field dress a deer? Yeah, you probably do. So you'd probably, you'd probably uh, break down a deer on your kitchen table. But that's different. You might even use a chainsaw. So it may not work completely. Stay with me. I'm losing myself. How many of you store your china in the bathroom on the back of the toilet? Anybody do that? Why? You're looking at me like I'm crazy. Like, nobody does that. Why don't they do that? Because in a house, we recognize there are different vessels, different furniture things that go in specific places. And so Paul talks about there's objects of gold and silver, there's objects of wood and clay. So in a house in the first century, it wouldn't be weird to see the objects of of gold and silver prominently displayed. Right? And those objects that are of wood and clay that are not just on central display, but they're not, it's not that they're not useful, they're made out of a different material, they're made out of something different. And so Paul is just giving this very broad example, illustration, that there are different kinds of things in the house. But then what he does off of that illustration in verse 21, he says, therefore, if anyone, so he's like, we just went from talking about plates and dishes to then saying anyone. So he's saying to Timothy, to you and to me, like, where are you in the Lord's house? Like, in relation to the Lord's house, where are you? Are you an object? So, so notice he says, if, there, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. And so Paul uses this imagery and asking the question that it will lay out for you and for me. Am I... An object that is ready for the master's use. Am I, am I a plate that is ready for the master's use? Am I, am I in a place where all that needs to happen is he needs to say, do this. It's ready. It's prepared. Earlier he said, present yourselves, right? Uh, as, as workers who are unashamed. So, Carrying that same idea. If we're to present ourselves as, as workers unashamed, and then he says, if anyone cleanses himself and, and he's set apart as holy, ready to be useful to the master, ready for every good work. So he describes three things for honorable use. Because you go, what, is, what does it mean to be honorable? What does it mean to be dishonorable? Honorable use, three aspects. First of all, he says to be set apart as holy. The second one is to be useful to the master, which we should probably settle pretty early on. Who is the master of my life? Who, who's, whose purpose am I serving? Is the ultimate purpose in my life to serve myself because I view myself as the master of the house? Or am I set apart and ready for the Lord's work? Because he's the master of the house. Now, if you remember, 
this isn't the first time that Paul, in his letters of First and Second Timothy, has used the illustration of, of, of the church as a house or as God's people as a house. In First Timothy, he says, like he lays things out, he says, this is how you ought to behave in the household of God. But it raises a question early on, whose work am I focused on? On what basis do I enter in his work? How is somebody made holy? How does somebody cleanse themselves? I want to just take us really quickly to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. As it's probably a, a couple of verses that we're well acquainted with, or you've maybe heard before, you've, you're familiar with the idea of them. But Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. Paul would, I would say this would be the, the way that Paul lays out how does someone become part of God's house and be ready for God's use. It says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. And if we just stop there, if we stop there before we go to verse 10, what we see is that the salvation is a free gift that God gives to people. It's not earned, it's not merited, we don't do anything to, to, to stock up enough to where we say, I have finally done enough that I can now say with confidence, I can put a down payment on salvation. Right? It's the free gift of God given by grace, received by faith, tr- simply trusting and, and walking in a faith response to what he has freely given. And he doubles down on this. He says, it's not something you've done. It's not your own doing. It is the gift of God. It is not the result of work so that nobody can say, look, I did it. I'm awesome. You're not so awesome. Sorry. Maybe someday you could be awesome. He doesn't say that. But then notice what he says. The, the, the very next carryover is, why is this free gift given? Why is it received by faith? What does God want us to do in and through it as a response to salvation? He says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. So he says, salvation not obtained by good works, but you're created for good works in Christ, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And you throw this alongside of 2 Timothy chapter 2, where he says that you're set apart as holy. How are you set apart as holy? You can only be set apart as holy because of the good and free gift of Jesus applied in your life through faith. But then, how are you useful to the master? He says in Ephesians chapter 2, it says that, that God has prepared this for us in advance, which means we ought to be ready to see what God wants us to do. But then also notice that it says uh, that we ought to be useful to the master of the house. And it says that Jesus is the, he, he's the craftsman. God is the, the one who builds us. He, we are his workmanship created for him for good works. So the question, very simply on the front end, is have we received the free gift of eternal life? We're touching on it a second time. Have we received this free gift? Are we clean, not because of our own works, but because of what Jesus has done in and through us and for us on the cross on Calvary? And then because of that free gift, whose glory am I living for? Am I living for him or am I living for me? Another question, and a litmus question might be, do I desire to be, do I even desire to be used of the Lord for his purpose? Do I desire to be ready for good works? Do I desire to be useful to him? If you take stock of your life, if you just imagine you're a piece of furniture in the Lord's house or a piece of a vessel, a conduit of his grace. Do you desire to be used by him? 
And if our honest answer to that question is not really, I would suggest we have probably gotten something out of whack on the free gift of grace that has been applied to us in faith. If there is no desire in our hearts to be useful to the God who created us, that ought to, there ought to be a little red flag waving in the breeze in our hearts going, something is not right. Like a little red caution light flashing on the dashboard of our heart saying, why is there no desire in me to be used by God for what he would want me to do. Like if there's no desire in my heart to bring glory to the one who created me. Why? On the converse side, maybe you go, I want to be used. I just have no idea what that even looks like. Then that might be an answer. Like there, there's another light going, I know I want to be useful, but I don't even know where to start. I don't even like, I don't even know what that means. I have this confident hope that Jesus has saved me, he's brought new life, but now now what? And what I love about 2 Timothy chapter 2 as we continue into this, like one of these things is the response of, of, of what Paul is calling Timothy to do, what this looks like functionally in verses 22 through 26, kind of begins to flesh out what does it look like to live a life of faith-filled response to who Jesus is and what he has done for us? So if we're to be useful to the master, ready for every good work, set apart as holy, what does that look like practically to get to that place? And that's why I love he follows it right up with verse 22. He doesn't just give an example of furniture and say, you'll figure it out. You know, you know like how there's furniture in a house? There's some kind like this and some kind like this? Yeah, don't just be like just just be like this kind of a plate, not that kind of a plate. And I'll write you another letter later. Right? He doesn't do that. He he immediately transitions and says, "So, like if this is the case, so if if anyone's going to cleanse himself and be and and go from dishonorable to honorable through faith in Jesus, so flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart." So he moves from illustration to practical. Flee and pursue. Flee cravings, desires, passions of the flesh, and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. You know, those things are kind of still kind of nebulous. Like, what does it mean to pursue those things? Can we make it even more simple and just say, so flee the flesh and pursue Jesus? Because righteousness, faith, love, and peace, we'd say that sounds a lot like the fruit of the Spirit. Those are the things that God produces in those who belong to him. And again, this is really cool. Like, it's the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. It's not the fruit that we conjure up in our lives because we want to be pleasing to the Master. Like, we belong to him, and he creates them in us. However, there is a response that is required of you and me to flee what is behind and pursue what is ahead. And there's an error if we're not careful. There's an error in focusing only on fleeing and not on pursuing. How many of you have ever tried to, like, just stop a bad habit? Or we could take it a step further and say, how many of you have ever identified a sin issue in your life? Like, I need to stop that. Anybody ever done that? Hopefully, like if faith is in Jesus, like you recognize like, oh, there is sin in my life that I need to turn from. Now, the problem is, what if we turn without pursuing? 
Is there any issue with that? Jesus gives a spiritual picture of this in Matthew chapter 12. In Matthew chapter 12, it's, it's in, a, in a running discourse that he's teaching. Um, it's a collection of, of, of a bunch of things that Jesus is teaching. And in Matthew chapter 12, verses 43 through 45, he gives a spiritual picture of what this looks like um, using that idea. And he talks about unclean spirits. Matthew chapter 12, verse 43 says, When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came, and when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there, and the last state of that person is worse than the first, so also it will be with this evil generation. Now, I'm not going to get into, like, what is Jesus talking about waterless places and spirits seeking rest and all of this thing. But get the idea of this. You get the idea. There's, there's, a, there's a, whether you want to say a, a sin issue has been turned from, a spirit has been cast out, a, 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 something that has been set in order, but nothing has filled its place. There's been a fleeing, but no pursuit. Right? There's been an emptying, but there's been no filling. How often, if you've tried to stop a bad habit, have you just filled it with another bad habit? And what Paul is encouraging Timothy is is not just the fleeing from cravings of the flesh, not just uh, fleeing from this desire in in a pursuit of a different desire, but a leaving behind the things of the flesh in a pursuit of or running after Jesus. So, don't hear me say, don't flee from sin. Flee from sin, but in your fleeing, pursue Jesus. Right? Like, the goal is not just sin management. Well, I stopped this, I boxed it, and I put it away, and I got this one off, and it's a little bit better than the other habit. It's a little bit better than the other sin issue. It's not as severe. It doesn't, doesn't seem to damage as many people or whatever else. No. Flee sin, pursue Jesus. Now, you can see why, really quickly, this is a lifelong pursuit and habit of the follower of Jesus. How many of you, regardless of how long you have followed Jesus, how many of you are completely free of sin? No. And so, you, you think about this. This is being written to Timothy, a co-worker, co-laborer, also missionary with Paul. He's not an immature believer. He's a mature believer. He's a mature follower of Jesus. He's been set aside to help put a church in order. He's a spiritual leader of the church, and Paul is telling him, flee youthful passions and pursue Jesus. This is, this is a message that none of us ever grow out of. We never get past the point where we need to stop pursuing Jesus. We never get past the point of fleeing from sin and pursuing Jesus. We never get to a a place where we are just strong enough that sin is no longer a temptation to us. We never get to a place where sin is no longer able to have a foothold and take root in our lives if we allow it to. We're never in a place where we don't need Jesus because we have all the grace that we need to get to this point and now I'm mature and I can be done. But at the same time, it's not an exhausting pursuit of Jesus because it's fueled by his spirit. It's not just fueled by your good works and your efforts and your trying hard. It is fueled by God himself dwelling in you through his spirit. That's really good news. There's a fly killing me. Pursue. And then we get an idea of what 
youthful passions or desires or, 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 or inclinations might be unique or might be specific to Timothy or what might be on the near radar of what he's about to deal with. Because in verse 23, he says, so flee youthful passions, but then notice this, he says, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. Earlier, last week, I think just last week, verse 16, he had told Timothy, avoid irreverent babble. Don't quarrel about words and charge others not to quarrel about words. Another way to say this is have nothing to do with foolish or stupid conversations that produce nothing but only give birth to, to fighting. Stay focused in your pursuit of Jesus. In, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4, we have already looked at this too. He says, no soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits and since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. What will we talk about? Stay focused in your pursuit of Jesus. Stay focused. Don't get distracted by endless controversies. There's never going to be an end to all of the potential distractions. It says, leave those behind and pursue Jesus. And notice this, what he says at the end of verse 22. This is important. He says, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Who you surround yourself with matters. Who is encouraging you matters. And again, he, he, he said, a simple question would be, who am I doing life with? Who, has, who is speaking into my life? Who is encouraging me? Who's, like, whose influence shows its fingerprints on my life? Whose life does my life show their, my fingerprints on? Like, who, who, is the, who is it within the ripple effect of my life? He says, have nothing to do with this. Instead, he says, the Lord's servant. And it's interesting that if you, if you really get into this, he, he actually uses the word, the Lord's slave, rather than just the, the a simpler word, servant. The, Lord, the one who belongs to the Lord must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. Now, I would love to let you off the hook and say this is only uh, applicable to pastors. Pastors must be not quarreling. Pastors must be kind. Pastors must be able to teach. uh, Pastors must patiently endure evil. Pastors must correct their opponents with gentleness. But for everybody else, there's no holds barred. I would love to be able to say that. But that's not true. Who is the Lord's servant? Who belongs to the Lord? You go right back up into verse 19. Let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. If last week we talked about the, the, maybe the, the, the um, motto of our age is very simply live your truth. Whatever is true for you is true. If that's the, if that's the motto of our age, then the attitude of our age is by any means necessary. How highly, on a corporate level, do we value gentleness, kindness, patiently enduring evil? And I think about this, like maybe the easiest way for us to talk about this is we think about this in the age of the argument of politics. 
Maybe some things that you've said or maybe some things that you have thought. We don't need a nice guy in office. We aren't electing a pastor. Kindness doesn't work. They only understand brashness and violence and, 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 and sternness and stubbornness and, 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 and. And we would love to say, I try to stay away from politics most of the time. We'll touch on it because it's almost the 4th of July. We would love to say that our elected officials are not a picture of the people that they represent. But they are a reflection of us corporately as a nation. The people that are, I mean, well, that, that seems weird because those people do not reflect me. They corporately reflect who we are more often than not. And the temptation is that we would say we want people who will fight ruthlessly until they deal with us that way. Or we would think we could silo it and put it, it's okay for those people to be brash and quarrelsome and bullies and not kind. Like it's okay for them because of the world they live in, but we're different. But what I would say of this is, for the Lord's people, what kind of people does God's word say we ought to be? And notice this really carefully. Uh, I love that he includes this because gentleness, kindness, and even if you want to translate patiently enduring evil as tolerance, and and tolerance rightly understood is patiently enduring evil, not just a a blank slate of approval of what everyone is doing. But notice verse 25. He says, correcting his opponents with gentleness. Gentleness does not mean lack of correction. Kindness does not mean not standing on conviction. Tolerance does not mean not being principled on the values of God's word. It does not mean just shaking wherever the cultural winds blow. It means staying sta- uh, standing firm with humility on the word of God in a culture that may not recognize it as truth. Gentleness does not mean caving into every cultural pressure. Kindness does not mean just saying whatever you do is great for you. And there might be a temptation that we think conviction automatically equals brashness. Conviction automatically means I can be a jerk because I have principles. And my principles are right. But he says, correcting opponents with gentleness. And the question is, why? Why does God call his people to live in a, and this is a countercultural life. Because we are, if we're not already there, we are quickly moving to a place where it does not matter the means that you use as long as you argue it and you get your point across. But that is not the kind of life that we are called to in Christ. And the question is, why does God call us to the opposite of what is easy and natural to us? Especially when it comes to correcting those who are uh, opponents. And then a better question would be, who does Paul mean? Who are the opponents? Who are Timothy's opponents? Who are the people that are opposed to him? 
And we get an idea of this at the rest of verse 25 and end of verse 26 because he says, Through the humble witness of God's people, standing on the conviction of God's word, God may perhaps grant them, the opponents, repentance leading to a knowledge of truth. And that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Correcting with humility and gentleness because the goal is that we see repentance that leads to a knowledge of the truth in those who right now are walking in spiritual darkness. The goal is not winning a debate. The goal is not asserting my opinion over your opinion. The goal is that those who are walking in darkness will see a great light and come to their senses and see the goodness of Jesus. And if we miss that, if our goal is simply to win an argument, then we'll argue however the means dictate we can win the argument. But if our goal is seeing lives change through the grace of Jesus, it completely changes our approach with people. Because our goal and our hope is we know what it is like to walk in darkness. We know what it's like to be walking around outside of our senses. I love the way that he words that. Come to their senses, which means to wake up and come out of a stupor. We know what it's like to all of a sudden go, holy cow, I see the goodness of Jesus. And our goal is to share that with people who currently do not know it. So I... In whatever way I can, because I know for the next year, until it kicks off for another four years, the temptation for us will be, anyone who does not think like me is an opponent who must be resisted with angry words. But for you and Jesus, if you are in Christ, how does God call us to see people who are currently outside of a right relationship with him? Not with brashness, not with anger, not with eagerness to see them get what they have coming, but to see them come out of a stupor and walk in the marvelous glory of the gospel because of what Jesus has done. And it goes completely against every inclination we have when facing somebody who has a different perspective. It goes completely against every inclination of the flesh, It goes against every way we would normally want to deal with somebody who sees things differently than us. And through a humble witness, which is a conviction that doesn't bend but doesn't bully. And how is that possible unless the Spirit does it through us? There is no way for us to be these kind of people if God's Spirit isn't at work within us. There is no way for us to live this kind of life in in, in a way that pleases the Lord to the glory of His name if He does not enable it in us. And the amazingly good news of Scripture is, and the promise of God's Word is, everyone who places their faith in the Lord is gifted the Spirit to walk in, to respond to, to follow, to pursue wherever they are. And then we need to be aware of just what the spiritual reality is. So, so first of all, they're walking in darkness. They need to come to their senses. But notice that they are currently in the snare of the devil, 
being captured by him to do his will. Nobody is a free agent just doing what they desire without any spiritual influence. We're either walking in the freedom of Jesus or we are walking in captivity to the enemy. And our prayer is that they would escape from captivity and walk in the freedom of Jesus. And so very simply, if I just sum it up with two questions. First one is, if I'm, not, if I'm not in a right relationship with Jesus, what is true of me? If you are not walking with Jesus, if you have not entered into a right relationship with him through faith in Jesus, what is true of you is that your life spiritually is dishonorable. It's spent pursuing cravings and desires that lead to captivity and to death. It doesn't lead to freedom. It leads to holding to ideas that appear to have knowledge but are empty. And Scripture says they're even ignorant even though they have the appearance of knowledge. And your life currently is caught in a trap. And if we circle back up to that, it says if anyone cleanses himself, well, how do they cleanse himself? Well, you don't really cleanse yourself. You put your faith in Jesus and he cleanses you. And he's the only one that can do it. But then what is true of you if you're in Christ? That your life is now set apart for honorable use, which is to be ready for every work that God has in store for you, to be useful to Jesus, to be presentable for his use, to see things as they are, and to live a life as gentle, humble ambassadors that are presenting the truth of God's word to people around you. And if you just had to, I don't know, take a stock of an inventory of your life and how it relates to people that are far from Jesus, is our response one of, of heart-filled compassion that wants to pursue with the gospel? Or is it a hands-off approach that says, I don't care? Do we see people as they really are? And do we have a heart to see them brought from dishonorable to honorable use? Is our, are our lives typified by gentleness, kindness, enduring because of Jesus, not because of how we are? And as we begin to turn our attention to the Lord's table, what we are confessing every time we come to the table and we eat and drink together is that our hope is rooted in what Jesus has done for us. That we are being reminded that Jesus was broken for us, shed his blood to forgive us, and the new life that we now live is, is lived and, and possible only because of what he's done. And we're reminded as we eat and drink together, we're reminded this is what Jesus has done for us. And it's also an opportunity. Paul encourages the church in, in Corinth as they get ready to eat and drink from the table to eat and drink in a way that is honoring to the Lord. First of all, to turn away from, to recognize and repent of, to turn away from anything that has a foothold in our life and to return back in this pursuit of Jesus. So as, as we invite the worship team back up, invite the deacons to come up and to prepare to serve, it's a time of examination too to say, because of Jesus, what does my life look like and how do I need to respond to him this morning? Because of the grace of Jesus poured out for me, not because of who I am, but because of who he is. 
What is my faith-filled response to the Lord this morning? Uh, And as we sing the song, as the the elements are passed out, uh, I just ask you to take a few moments of reflection to to do business with the Lord, to be quiet in front of Him, and just uh, lay your heart before Him, present yourself to Him. And if there's anything that's keeping you from being ready for His use, that's anything that's keeping you from, from being ready for Him to use you, deal with it this morning, presenting yourself ready for what He has in store.